You're listening to WP Radio. I'm your host, Terry Doherty. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be putting out one episode per day of our live interviews from the OIAA Claims Conference that was held in downtown Toronto. We had such a fun time there, meeting everybody and interviewing our guests. These were all smaller interviews, so we're going to do our advertisement first and then have the entire interview all in one chunk. This episode is brought to you by Osgood Professional Development. Osgood's upcoming program, Successful Advocacy in Insurance Mediations, will be held on February 21st and 22nd in downtown Toronto. Chaired by Frank Gomberg and Paul Torrey, leading a faculty of over 20 distinguished counsel and mediators, it will provide you with tools that will improve every mediation you appear on. Join in person or by live webcast and learn more at osgoodpd.ca forward slash insurance. This episode is with David Porter and Edward Poon of Jensen Hughes. Now please enjoy. Terry Doherty, WP Radio. We're here live at the OIAA Claims Conference. Uh, right now I've got uh, Dave Porter from Jensen Hughes, uh, Forensic Engineering. Jensen Hughes just uh, is good enough. All right. Um, so, uh, first of all, thank you very much for being on with me, David. Oh, very welcome. Thank uh, you for having us. T- tell me about uh, Jensen Hughes. What do you guys do? So, Jensen Hughes is a large uh, specialty engineering firm, and uh, in the Canadian branch, we have uh, forensic engineering, which is what we're really representing here at the OIAA today. Okay. And... Uh, where are you located? What's your main office, or do you have multiple offices? We have seven offices in Canada, uh, from Halifax to Vancouver. Uh, one in Toronto, which is where we're located. Also in Ottawa, and as I said, Halifax, uh, Calgary, Edmonton, and two offices in the Vancouver area. Okay, and what do you guys specialize in? A lot of the company does fire protection, fire protection engineering, and also fire investigation. Uh, we have uh, a broad base in other specialty engineering and the nuclear uh, fire protection and risk protection space, and some structural engineering as well, large groups that do that. The Toronto office uh, does a lot of code work, code consultant work, and fire protection engineering work, as well as the forensic engineering team, which uh, we're from. Uh, we do uh, service all sides of the insurance industry, from the uh, auto and uh, BI sort of things. And my, I do collision reconstruction, as well as we have a bomb, mechanic, uh, bomb mechanist on staff. We also have a civil engineer, uh, and uh, we do fire protection and fire investigation as well. So uh, how long has Jensen Hughes been around? Are you guys uh, fairly new? Are you an older company? Have you got legacy companies that you've kind of formed? Yeah, Jensen Hughes is the merger of uh, Ralph Jensen Associates and Hughes and Associates, uh, which is where the two names come from. That happened in 2014. Uh, since then, there's been a number of acquisitions, and notably in, in Toronto and Canada, there was the legacy of uh, Serica Fire and uh, RBA, uh, Randall Brown and Associates, and Lard Muniak. And those all form now Jensen Hughes. And the uh, legacy of Serica was coming from the forensic engineering space. And so they really brought the forensic engineering as well as the incorporation of case forensics in the United States to a larger forensic engineering firm in the United States as well. So do you have affiliation in the US or do you actually have Jensen Hughes offices in the US? Uh, we also actually have Jensen Hughes offices in the U.S. The larger uh, companies in the U.S., there's about 45 offices in the United States. We have 70 offices globally and about 1,400 
technical resources globally. Wow, okay. Um, so you said your specialty is auto accident? Yes. Kind of accident I reconstructionist? Vehicle collision reconstruction. Okay, and then uh, there's also Edward Poon, and he is an, an engineer as well he with is. your firm? He's with the civil engineering, uh, he's a civil engineer. Okay, and uh, so in your Toronto office, because we're in Toronto, tell me um, what's under that umbrella? What do you have there that people can, you know, from the GTA that can get some, some help or assistance? So one of the great things about uh, Jensen Hughes and how we structure the firm is we have local people who could be contacted for any of the major lines, either in fire, civil, or in the MVA kind of uh, collision side of things. Uh, but if we need to, we oftentimes bring in external resources from the broader Jensen Hughes, which considering the size of the firm, we can access a, a huge number of very specialized resources. Uh, so certainly in Toronto office, we have fire investigation, we have civil uh, engineering where we can do uh, the reconstruction for a building after a fire. So basically, if on the, in the property side, we'll do an end-to-end -end solution where we're able to actually do the investigation as well as uh, assist with uh, the reconstruction efforts and the building permits. Um, and in the, the BI side, I would do all the collision reconstruction. We also have resources around failure analysis. So if there's any water escape uh, issues or, or materials failures or product liability issues, some of those would be bringing in experts from other offices, but we'll do that with the assistance of the local people so you can have the responsiveness of someone local who you can contact and we can help you with the investigation while still necessarily bringing in the, the higher end resources. Okay, so talk to me a little bit about the difference between fire protection and fire investigation. Is there, do they commingle or what? How does that play? They commingle somewhat. The fire protection that Jensen Hughes does is really just designing the buildings uh, and making sure the buildings are safe from a fire perspective. Are we talking uh, building envelope? Or are we talking, what are we? We do building envelope. We're actually a major part of the discussion is going on around cladding and cladding fire. Because right of England? Now. That's one of the issues, certainly. It's, it's uh, globally become an issue, and, and we are uh, actively involved through the NFPA, which is the National or the, uh, Fire Protection uh, Association, um, as well as the Society of Fire Protection Engineers. And so we're working with those groups to really develop standards to help build better buildings so we can avoid tragedies in the future. Uh, but we also do uh, fire alarm design and, and sprinkler design and, and a lot of the fire protection side of the, the business. We also do fire modeling for particular cases where there's there's some requirement that a building needs that's outside of the normal scope of the code. And the great thing is those resources can be brought to bear when we get into fire investigations. They're somewhat separate disciplines. The design is really looking at things before the, an event, and the, the investigation is really looking at them after the event. But we bring the, the knowledge and the experience from having done some of that design to the uh, investigation portion. So we're talking pre-loss, post-loss? More or less, yeah. Okay. So let's, because pre-loss is kind of interesting because those things, I mean, will eventually cut down on the post-loss damages. So um, when contractors or builders are getting involved, um, are, are you contacted through the insurance industry? Is this something that's knowledge or known in the insurance industry that you can assist in this uh, fire design and you know, fire stops, I'm sure there's more, a lot more to it than that, or, you know. Um. I, that's, whether it's known or not is really why we're here today. Hopefully we're trying to make it known a little bit better and have some of the insurance industry understand that, that when there is a loss, 
um, particularly it's when a lot of these the issues come up from an investigation side, we can be of assistance in the remediation and the recovery to make sure that uh, when it when those spaces are rebuilt, they're rebuilt if you want better, so we can avoid problems in the future. That's that's just looking at it from the fire perspective. There's also the the the, the civil engineering portion of that, where for example, Ed might want to speak to this a little bit more of when there's some sort of a structural loss, we can look at it and make sure that whatever's going back in is to current codes and current standards. Can we look at, and uh, maybe Ed, you can speak to this. Can we, uh, and sorry, I should have introduced you a little earlier. So we also have Ed Poon here from Jensen Hughes. Ed, can you speak to me about um, uh, structural issues or structural defects? Can you go in and look at that and say that we should have done maybe this a little different? Maybe it was done to code, but there's just a better way of doing it. Um, does Jensen Hughes offer that as well? So as far as in the rebuild section, um, you know, the reason it failed was because, you know, the intensity of the fire or it just traveled too quickly and those kind of things. Is, is that something Jensen Hughes is, is capable of to, talking to? Absolutely. Uh, a large part of what Jensen Hughes does is building code consulting. So in addition to what I myself would do for the restoration uh, portion of, of insurance claims, uh, we have a large number of technical experts who do a lot of alternative solutions. Uh, so if there are certain situations where the building code is not as specific or the existing conditions sort of fall outside the, the box of a build, the building code, uh, we can provide recommendations on best solutions or practices. And do you guys do fire modeling as well? So, you know, you can say or give a better answer to how you think the fire may spread or things to prevent it from spreading and, you know, slowing down that spread? Definitely. That's one of the things that we can do. Uh, we have uh, modeling software uh, to uh, predict sort of the fire spread or even smoke migration. Uh, would the building have benefited from a sprinkler system, uh, so on and so forth? Uh, what are the fire separations, uh, emergency egress, uh, things of that nature. Okay. Um, and is, is that being utilized enough in the insurance industry, do you think? Or is that something you think we need to do more of? Certainly, I think, it's David again, there's certainly more that could be done. Uh, we are constantly trying to push to have a better understanding of, of not only what happened, but what are the alternatives, what can we do to make the system perform better in the future, which is really what the modeling is. We, we tend to do a fair bit of the modeling in the design stage, not as much in the forensic space, um, but we're hoping to do more of it because we think it is really interesting for an insurer to for perhaps understand what are the alternatives. If there was no sprinkler, if the sprinklers didn't deploy for some reason, what would have happened if they did? Could that could be a really, uh, the, the, having better answers to those questions can be very powerful in, in figuring out not only the responsibility for the, the damage and the loss, but also for what can be done to better um, prevent a loss in the future. Do you ever think we're going to get to a stage where we have sp fire suppression or fire sprinklers in residential homes? Frankly, I'm not the person to answer that. Uh, I, I think... What about you, Ed? Are you? Do you think we'd ever get to that stage? Because me, personally, I think that'll save a ton of lives just aside from the, the property damage? It's possible. I mean, there's certainly definitely been uh, revisions to the code in terms of warning or life safety systems. So smoke alarms now, you're required to have a lot more. There have to be audible, visible. 
Before you would have maybe one or two smoke alarms throughout the house. Now you're supposed to have them in bedrooms, one in the hallway. So it's definitely... Uh, yeah, I spend a fortune on batteries every May, trust yeah. me. Going around changing them in my house. One, one of, so the tagline for Jensen Hughes is advancing the science of safety. Um, advancing the science of safety? safety? That's right. It's a great tagline. Um, well, let's talk about um, accident reconstruction, vehicle forensics. Do you deal with um, um, body movement in the car? So, you know, the mechanical? Um, Certainly, that's part of the collision reconstruction. When we do uh, an assessment of an entirety of a collision, we need to first understand how the collision occurred. But once we have that, we can certainly talk about biomechanics and how the bodies move. Not only that, how um, the forces that a body would be experiencing during that collision and, and how the body would respond to those forces. Uh, really, that's what uh, the biomechanical group that we have we don't have a biomechanist located in the Toronto office, but a lot of that is done off of the collision reconstruction, and we bring those people in to comment on that and, uh, and be that expert, certainly. And, and do you look at loading marks on the seat belts and all those, you know, the fancy things that I always hear engineers talk about? I mean, those are, for me, those are, you know, when I was a kid, I used to think it was futuristic, but the fact that I'm now in the industry and I see them, I think it's a wonderful thing, the fact that there actually, there is loading marks, and you can determine if someone was sitting in that seat belt uh, in a locked position is, is great. Certainly that's part of almost every physical inspection we look at. We look at a number of vehicles. We will sure to document all those sorts of typical um, physical tells and the physical evidence on the vehicles. We're also very active in downloading the vehicle electronics. So all the airbag modules, this store a wealth of data now, which you probably have heard of. Uh, but we also have the capability to download the infotainment systems, which is all of the cell phone uh, connection and all the cell phone records for the people that were uh, connected to the cars. So how does that play into Pepita? Is there, is there issues with uh, Pepita and the Privacy Act with doing that? Uh, I'm sure that's an issue that some lawyers will deal with at some point, but right now uh, we're under the, the inspection uh, permissions, and most of the time we do this uh, all the time we will only download our information when we have written consent from the vehicle owner to download our information. So that's done with consent and permission, so that takes away that whole issue of Pepita. Correct. The, the problem is um, some of that data is not necessarily for only the driver, but perhaps some other people. Could be a passenger in Could the car. Could be a pa passenger. So th those are some issues that are going to be resolved, but it's a relatively new technology, and that's why that's not been tested yet in court. Well, it's, it's a new one for me. I've never heard that the infotainment is, uh, is something you guys are downloading, but that, again, I would have never even thought about that. Um, but it, it could be relevant. It could be cell phone use at the time of the MVA, so the two times aligned. It could be that. There's also a, a lot of work we do with the SIU units as to who was actually driving the vehicle at the time, whether the cell phone was connected at the time of a certain event, for example. Um, the, the frequency of usage of a, of a vehicle by different people because we identify which cell phone was connected more commonly. There's, there's a, a countless uses for the information. We're just specialists in obtaining it and interpreting it. The actual application from the insurance perspective is really whatever the adjuster can imagine it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw a curveball here, but um, I recently spoke to a lawyer um, at Dance and Rec with regards to autonomous vehicles. And autonomous vehicles are kind of the way of the future. And you know, I, he was telling me by 2040, every vehicle in the, wor in the world 
could basically have some autonomous features and we're going to be away from your, you know, um, standard gas, petrol, diesel car and we're going to be looking at electric autonomous vehicles by 2040. By then I probably won't be driving, I'll be relaxing somewhere. Um, but regardless of that, are you guys dealing with autonomous vehicles and the issues that are coming with that? Yes. There are at least two separate issues that we're dealing with on that front. The first is the electric vehicles present a, 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 a unique challenge from a fire protection perspective. Uh, Lithium-ion batteries, as we saw with the Galaxy Note 7, for example, pose a hazard. They can catch on fire. Uh, and they're a different type of fire hazard than traditional fire hazards. Because you can't put it out the same way typical fire, right? Exactly. So we're working on some, on some uh, you know, our, both our, our people in our Toronto office, as well as our, we have a large lab in Baltimore uh, where we do a lot of research. And that lab is actively working on some ways to more effectively suppress those fires. And we're, as those solutions come out, we're, we're certainly working on that. But the other portion of the question is about the autonomous nature of the vehicles. There's several ways we're working on that. First of all, those vehicles are generating data at an astounding rate. The amount of data that's resident on those modules, those vehicles, is, is growing exponentially. And so we're working on harvesting and understanding that data, first of all. Um, but we're also working on some of the other aspects of it. We are actually going to be sending you a, 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 an article for WP very soon regarding vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle, uh, communication and, and some of the barriers that, are, that still are, are present to a, a, really the autonomous vehicles taking off. Now, are you getting pushback from the, um, the manufacturers about wanting to share this as being proprietary? Uh, it's not proprietary information with manufacturers, so there's really no pushback. And a lot of the manufacturers are, are actually quite forthcoming with data at this point because everyone's recognizing that if every, all the manufacturers try to do it by themselves, there's going to be a very big hill to climb, if you will. There's a, there's a lot to be resolved before we're able to do this. And when we do, the, the promise of the autonomous vehicles is really is going to be life savings. And yeah, and I, and I mean, I got to tell you, I was really astounded to find out the amount of IT companies that have partnered with the motor companies is unbelievable. Your Intels and your um, Cisco systems and all these companies that are partnering with GM and Ford and Tesla, well, Tesla is one on its own, but your GM, your Ford, Mitsubishi, uh, BMW, like, I mean, and the amount of money they're investing into this is astronomical. There's a lot being invested and there's a lot of a lot of potential there. And so it's a very exciting space right now in, in the automotive world and even in the collision reconstruction, there's a lot of opportunities to get a lot more data, to understand how things are going and, and it's gonna change how we do business. Certainly. Now, have you guys had an opportunity to down download any AV vehicles at this point? Yes, but not the fullness of the, of the autonomous features. Those are still evolving. So we have gotten some data out of them, and it, it really becomes a matter of where on the autonomous spectrum we're talking. Uh, if you're talking about automatic braking systems and... and, and so you're level control. one, because I learned a lot about it in the last little while, My, and I've read up a lot about it. So you're, you're level one, you're, auton you're, you're automatic braking and you're automatic steering correct. Uh, I'm sure you're going to see a lot more of that because your basic vehicles are carrying it now, right? You've got your RAV4s and your Nissan Rogues. They're all in that level one, right? Yeah, a lot of that's already already being downloaded. We already have access to some of the level one data. Some of the, the, the level three data is a little bit more difficult to find, um, but it's out there and we're starting to see some of it. So as those, as those cases work their way through, we're gonna hopefully have some things to share with the industry so that they can know what to expect going forward. Now, is that coded being coded differently? 
uh, some of it's being stored differently. For example, Tesla keeps all the data in central, uh, they, they pull the data up. Uh, so they upload the it out of the vehicle? It's still resident in the vehicle, but they certainly are communicating with the vehicle on an ongoing basis, so they'll retain that data. So I did ask the, uh, the lawyer from uh, Dance and Rec, and that was Jonathan Jamak. Um, I asked him about your typical car. After you have a near loss from a typical car accident, it's typically 210 or 250 key cycles before all that data wipes. And he was saying that because of this AV, they need to keep that data on there much longer so the, compu the computer system and the, the technology that's being stored in these vehicles is astronomical. As I said, the, the amount of data being generated is, is growing exponentially all the time. Uh, every, uh, you're right, some of the vehicles still do erase uh, some of the transient data after a number of key cycles. A lot of them are keeping data much longer now, and certainly the, a lot of the other data that's being generated for the autonomous functions, some of that will, will never be deleted. There's enormous amounts of data being stored and, and being it is becoming retrievable. And is that because they're using it um, as it learns? It's learning it and it's, it needs to keep that data to keep learning? Is that the process or is it, or is it just kept there in the back as a residual and doesn't really need to be there but they just don't, they haven't found a way to get rid of it or move it off? Some, some of both, I believe. I think the, the, the why they've chosen to do it is varies by automaker, but certainly there's, you're right, there's a lot being stored and what actually happens to it, we're not quite sure. This is what we're starting to understand. As these systems come out and, and we test them more, we're starting to better understand what's going to be kept and for how long and, and, and what can we do with it. Now, are you having um, people deal with LIDAR and radar? Or do you have that specialty within Jensen Hughes to deal with these new level three and four cars that are coming on the market? Um, are you guys having that kind of training to make sure you're staying on top of those things? So those sensing technologies are certainly present, but the data is being stored somewhere in the vehicle. And as of yet, we don't have access to it, but certainly we're, we're staying on the cutting edge. The, the infotainment system, for example, is, is the, the most recent step. But as that data becomes available and as we start to decode it and figure out what's going on, we're gonna stay on top of that and, and see whatever is available for us, we'll have it. All right, how can we reach you at Jensen Hughes? Uh, is there a main number to reach uh, Jensen Hughes, an email address or a website? How can people reach out to Jensen Hughes? Yeah, certainly, I think the best, uh, the best would be our, our 1-866 number. We have a, a main line, which will always be answered by someone, and if we don't answer it right away, we'll get back to you very, very quickly. And that's in Canada, 866-285-2041. Uh, and in Canada, if you wanted to see our, our website, it's jensenhughes.com backslash Canada. Okay, and um, I, I want to thank you both for coming on. I really enjoyed learning a lot more about uh, Jensen Hughes and what you guys offer. So thank you very much, Edward and, uh, and David, for being on the podcast this morning. And I do look forward to articles from you guys in the future. And, uh, and again, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Terry. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to our live series on WP Radio. We'll have another episode or installment for you later in the week. Please check in with us, and if you have any questions, please email me at terry at oiaa.com, and we'll talk with you soon.
Are you an insurance adjuster actively adjusting claims? If so, we want you. The OIAA is a professional organization currently consisting of 1,800 claims professionals with its main focus on education, networking, and knowledge. We promote and maintain a high standard of ethics among insurance claims professionals. We work together with government departments and officials, governing bodies, members of other organizations, insurance companies, associations and fraternities, as well as the general public in matters connected with the business of insurance and insurance claims. We recognize the value of networking for education, advocacy, advancing professional standards, and offering mutual support. We provide networking, professional development, inside industry news, and support to insurance adjusters across Ontario. By joining our network of active and associate members, you receive a direct introduction to other members, our Without Prejudice magazine delivered to your door, discounts for all social and professional development events, knowledge from mixing with seasoned, experienced adjusters and with new up-and-coming professionals, and satisfaction knowing that you are an active participant in shaping claims adjustment and risk management services in Ontario. Most compelling of all is the price. Just for $50 a year plus HST, the value far outweighs the fee. Can you afford not to join us? Please visit our website to become a member and to review our calendar of events at www.oiaa.com.